Thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us in singing uh, truth to, uh, to God and to one another as well. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Ian. Uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and I'm glad for the opportunity this morning uh, to open the scriptures as we do each week and to study them with you. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles back to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we'll be camping out there for our time together this morning. Pastor Jonathan has already read this chapter for us. Grateful for that. As you've been interacting with Mark chapter 6 this week, you probably noticed this is one of the longer chapters that we've encountered so far. Not only is it just long in terms of length, there's also a number of different episodes in this chapter. Because of that, because there's such a wide variety of material here. This morning, uh, we'll do something a little bit different that we've not done uh, quite in this way so far in the series. Uh, we'll take just a, a few minutes to uh, review the chapter, kind of make some comments on a few of these uh, narratives. And then for the majority of our time this morning, uh, we'll take a closer look and examine one particular story in this chapter. Uh, each of these episodes in, in Mark 6 uh, would certainly be worthy of, of multiple uh, sermons, but we'll just look at one of those uh, in detail this morning. Uh, before we go any further and, and jump into our passage this morning, uh, let's dedicate this time to the Lord with a word of prayer. Lord, we do uh, thank you and praise you for, uh, for who you are. We are grateful that you've gathered us together as your people, and we're grateful that you have provided us with wisdom by your spirit. We pray that you would continue to do that. And as we open your word and, and seek to uh, glean the truth of it, uh, we ask that you help us to do that, that you would uh, give us the wisdom and insight necessary um, to continue to press uh, toward closer and, and deeper faithfulness to Christ. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So far in this series, we have read six chapters of, of Mark's gospel. So as you think about what we've read and what we've uh, interacted with so far in this series, how do you think Jesus' ministry is going? How's Jesus' ministry going so far? Uh, think about some of the things that Jesus has, has done and, and interacted with and encountered so far. Uh, on the one hand, he's proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, uh, which he himself is bringing. He's gathered a, a group of followers uh, around him, around himself. He's healed a number of people miraculously calmed a great storm. On the other hand, he's also upset virtually everyone with any sort of political or religious power, and he's been rejected by his entire family. Last week, Mark chapter 5, uh, was a very positive chapter overall for Jesus. We saw a man actually request to follow Jesus after being liberated uh, by Jesus from an evil spirit. We saw a Jewish synagogue leader who has the faith to come to Jesus and request healing for his daughter. That's rare in the Gospels as well. And we saw a woman who recognized the kingdom power that Jesus possessed and had the faith to simply reach out and, and touch him to be restored. Notice how Mark has portrayed these particular figures. If we think back to last week, what do all these figures have in common? We look at these three texts together, we can see that all three of them come and fall down before Jesus. This is really interesting. Mark uses the exact same language of all three of them. This is uh, Mark's way of indicating to you 
that all three of these figures, in one way or another, demonstrate their faith in Christ. Jesus grants uh, all three of them the requests that they bring to him. Mark chapter 6 tells a very different story. Uh, This chapter begins with Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth. He teaches in the synagogue there and is rejected by his own people. Their response is initially uh, similar to the crowd in that they're amazed, they're astounded by Jesus' teaching. If we think about Mark more broadly, the crowd is constantly astonished. They're always amazed at at Jesus' teaching. But then something about Jesus trips them up here. Something about Jesus' familiarity. They they actually know him from, from when he was growing up. How could this Jesus possibly have this kind of authority? We know his family. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his siblings who all according to the end of of Mark chapter 3, all think he's crazy. We watched him grow up right in front of us. He's he's nobody special. He's a carpenter. Jesus' response to them is essentially uh, to accuse them of of the same sin that plagued the people of Israel for hundreds of years in the Old Testament, namely that they refuse to hear those whom God has sent to them to tell them to repent. Jesus is too familiar to them. And so they reject him. Initially, they marvel at Jesus's teaching, and now Jesus marvels at them for their lack of faith. The people in Nazareth here stand in, in sharp contrast to the three figures from chapter 5 who fall down before Jesus and demonstrate their faith. Then the next episode in, in chapter 6 here, uh, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in order to do a ministry on their own. Uh, That's part of the reason Jesus called them together from the start. According to Mark chapter 3, we can look back at at that chapter there and see that uh, when Jesus initially called the disciples, he'd always planned on sending them out to do his work, to preach, so that people might repent. He's given them uh, his authority, and he's told them, don't take any supplies with you so that you might be reliant on God for your provision and for your shelter. So Jesus sends out the 12, and then Mark pauses the story here. He pauses the narrative, and he inserts this account of the death of John the Baptist. We'll look at this account a little more closely here in a moment. The next two episodes are probably two of the most popular or most well-known in all of the Gospels. Jesus feeds the 5,000 here, and then sends the disciples across the lake to Bethsaida, and comes behind them uh, several hours later at night, walking on the water. Again, uh, so many things here that we could could focus on and and benefit from. These two stories, just to say at this point, these two stories are are just packed with Old Testament imagery. And Mark has included them here to tell us something about the identity of Jesus. I think this uh, brings up a really important point about these miracle stories. Why do the gospel writers include these sorts of accounts in their uh, stories of the life of Jesus? Why are these sorts of of episodes included? What kind of purpose do they have? I think if we're not careful, we can sometimes be tempted to see these miracle stories simply as the gospel writers inserting 
uh, proofs of Jesus's divinity, and we can we can go to those to try to to try to demonstrate that Jesus is both divine and and human. But I think that kind of limits these miracle stories to being essentially uh, magic tricks that just sort of show Jesus's power. But we have to remember that for the gospel writers, and especially for Mark, these are more than just demonstrations of power. They're certainly that, but they're more than that. More significantly. Mark has inserted these here because they tell us something about who Jesus is. They tell us about his identity. So when Jesus feeds the crowd on the shore of the lake, let's not only think about how amazing it is that Jesus can multiply the bread and the fish in this way. The story should remind us of God providing for the people of Israel the food in the wilderness in Exodus 16, just after Moses has led them out of the land of Egypt. And of course, just to to make sure that knot is tied tightly, there are 12 baskets left over, 12 of them. When Jesus uh, walks on the water immediately following this, let's not only think about Jesus's miraculous power here, let's think about all of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of God as the Almighty One who rules over the sea, over the water, like Psalm 29 and Psalm 89. So Mark has put these in here, not because they're just interesting or because they're just exciting or because they're, uh, you know, fascinating. Mark has, has put these in there for a much deeper and much richer reason. Jesus comes to earth as a human and begins doing things that only God does, that only God has the prerogative to do. Mark is trying to show us who Jesus is by telling you about the things that he does. This is the way that the gospel writers form their Christology. This is how the gospels talk about the divine and human nature of Jesus. The final episode in Mark 6 is sort of a summary of some healings that Jesus uh, performs when he and the disciples get to a place called Gennesaret. If you want to visualize this, here's a, a map of the northern region of Galilee during the time of Jesus. You can see Gennesaret Uh, highlighted there on the west side. Jesus has been all over this area so far in in Mark's gospel. A number of these locations are probably familiar to you. Uh, You can see Jesus' hometown of Nazareth down here to uh, to the southwest, even further. You can see uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida up on the north. Uh, Both of these figure prominently in Mark's gospel as well. And then uh, to the south there, you can see Gadara, This would be where uh, Jesus uh, cast out the demon from the man in in the last chapter there. So this is kind of a high flyover of Mark chapter 6. Obviously, there's much, much more uh, here than we can uh, cover thoroughly in one one Sunday morning. So I want to spend the rest of our time taking a, a look at the account of the death of John the Baptist here. Back in uh, Mark chapter 1, Mark gave us a clue that John has already been arrested when Jesus first began his ministry. You can see that back in chapter 1, verse 14. At that point in his gospel, Mark doesn't tell us how or why that happened. He's sort of put a pause on that, and he's waited till this point in his gospel to pick this back up. Now, there's a lot of fascinating details in this story as well, but let's notice just a couple of them here. First, let's pay attention to where this story has been placed in Mark's gospel narrative. Mark's been very strategic about where he's put this story. 
It's, uh, it's not the case when, when Mark is, is writing this text. It's not the case that he has just strung a bunch of stories of Jesus together in whatever order has you know, come, come to his mind. He's done this after uh, several decades, by the time he writes this, of thought and reflection and, and inspiration of the Spirit. He's put these together in a particular order for a particular reason. He's done this so that we can, can understand more of who, who Jesus is. One way that he structures his gospel is to take a particular story about Jesus and to split it open right in the middle and insert another story into it and then wrap it back around and complete the first story afterwards. This forms sort of a, a literary sandwich if you will. And the point is that we're supposed to read these stories together because often they contain uh, similar themes, similar ideas. And, and Mark has done this so that we can read them together and that can sort of uh, impact the way that we see Jesus. Uh, this just happened last week. If you'll uh, remember Mark chapter 5, in that chapter, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus and, and requests healing for his daughter. Jesus leaves, and, and on the way to the house, the woman with the bleeding issue comes up and touches Jesus and is, and is healed. And then when that story is completed, then Jesus finishes his journey to the house and, and heals the daughter. So Mark has taken the, the larger story of Jairus and, and cut it open right in the middle, inserted the, the story of the woman there, and then closed it up at the end. And the reason he's done this is because both of these stories are essentially about the nature of faith in Christ. Both of those stories have that as a primary theme. And so Mark is trying to get you to read those together because they have related ideas. The same thing happens right here in Mark chapter 6. Just before the John the Baptist episode, Jesus has sent out the 12 to go preach and to heal. Because of that, uh, verse 14 tells us that Jesus' name is becoming well-known in the region. Jesus' fame is spreading, even to the point that, that Herod hears about it. We'll talk more about him in a second. Mark takes this opportunity to tell you about John, and then immediately after this, the disciples return to Jesus and tell him everything that they've done. So in this story, the disciples being sent out and returning would be the, the bread, and the, the middle filling would be the story of, of John the Baptist. So Mark is trying to get us to read the stories about John the Baptist and the story of the disciples being sent out. He's trying to get you to read these together. Why would he do this? Well, he has some, some questions and some things in mind that he wants his audience to think about, and they're all centered around the nature of discipleship. What does it look like for followers of Jesus to be sent out into the world? What kind of world are they going to encounter when they're sent out? What does being a follower of Jesus truly entail? These are the kinds of questions to ask as we, as we think through these stories that are all about what it looks like to follow Jesus and what experiences uh, might, be, might be waiting. So look, at me, uh, look with me at verse 14. Here the disciples have been sent out uh, to heal the sick and to preach repentance. We'll pick up the story here in Mark 6, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. 
And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Here we get a clue that John has actually been killed already by this point in the story, at the time that the disciples are, are sent out. But again, Mark, Mark didn't tell you this story where it happened chronologically. He's, he's picked it up and put it right here so that he can uh, emphasize these related themes here. So why is John in prison and why is he executed? Verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so just to set uh, this story up a little bit, uh, we need to take a look at, at the backstory to this event. Now, if you uh, like history, I think you'll enjoy this, and if you don't, then bear with me. Who's Herod? Have we encountered Herod before in Mark's gospel? Maybe that's a little bit of a trick question. There's at least five Herods in the New Testament period, and most of them appear in the New Testament at one point or another. The most well-known Herod was probably Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, was appointed king of the Jews by Rome to rule the territory of Israel, the region of Israel. Uh, this is the Herod who appears in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this is the Herod that uh, attempts to conspire with the uh, wise men. He tries to trick them so that they will show him where uh, Jesus was born so that he can go and, and wipe him out. He sees Jesus as a threat. Uh, this Herod dies of an illness shortly after Jesus is born. After his death, his territory was divided up uh, among his three sons. And Rome granted them authority to rule, but they're not kings in the same way that Herod was a king. Rome had gotten kind of sick and tired of constant Jewish uprising, and so they have installed these three uh, sons of Herod as sort of puppet rulers, but they're not, they're not kings in the same sense. This map here gives you an idea of, of the territory that each of them uh, rules. You can see in the south there, uh, in the green, you've got uh, the region ruled by Archelaus. Then uh, the purple to the northeast is ruled by Herod Philip. And then the pink, two sections of pink there on the west of the Sea of Galilee and then down south to the east of the Jordan, uh, those are ruled by Herod Antipas. To make things more confusing, uh, the New Testament sometimes will just simply refer to a character as Herod, and there's a number of, of people that we could be talking about. Uh, this last Herod, who rules in the pink there, is the Herod that we're dealing with here in, in Mark chapter 6. We've not met him yet in Mark's gospel. We've not heard about this Herod. Uh, but in Mark chapter 3, we did learn that his supporters, uh, people who... Um, were in favor of his rule in this region, were part of the crew that had been conspiring uh, to kill Jesus. The yellow regions there also, uh, just to note, those are not Israelite territory, so Rome simply rules those on their own. There's, there's not any Jewish ruler over those areas. So we've got Herod the Great, who rules uh, just after uh, Jesus is born, and then after his death, his three sons, uh, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Archelaus, 
uh, divide up the territory. And then there's a couple more Herods that come after that, but I'll spare you from the rest of their family tree. Now that we have our Herods straight, here's basically what happened to set up this event according to the New Testament, as well as a, a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. I'll leave the map up here so you can follow along if you'd like. Herod Antipas had married the daughter of the ruler of Nabatea. You can see Nabatea at the far bottom there of the map, right by the Dead Sea. He had married uh, the daughter of the ruler of Nabatea in order to form a political alliance with them. Then one time when he was uh, visiting his brother, Philip, he decided that uh, he would like Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias, he would also be Herod Antipas's niece, he would like her as a wife as well. Herodias agreed to this because this would have resulted in an increased uh, political and, and social standing for her. So she agrees, but she demands that Herod Antipas divorce the princess of Nabatea. Antipas does this, which then sets off a border war with Nabatea and incites religious protest among all of the Jews due to this completely non-Torah observant marriage. John the Baptist calls out Herod for this. Because of this, he's arrested, and the text tells us that it's actually Herodias who has got it out for him more than, more than Herod himself. She's actually the one that, wa that wants to execute him. Now let's notice something about the relationship between John and Herod, according to verse 19 and 20. This is really, really interesting. Look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So we're told that Herod actually keeps John alive because he's a pretty good guy. He's righteous and he's holy. And if you'll notice this note at the end of verse 20, he actually kind of like, kind of likes to listen to John's preaching. You see that there? He finds it puzzling, perplexing, but he actually enjoys listening to John preach. I think this is really, really, really profound. Herod here introduces us to a category of person that likes to listen to Bible teaching. He likes to hear preaching. But when the rubber actually meets the road, he has no intention of obeying it and no intention of letting it influence his life at all, especially when it's going to cost him something. It's almost as though when Herod receives the word, he immediately receives it with joy. But when the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and power rise, he falls away and bears no fruit. We heard something about that in Mark's gospel to this point. Pick up the story in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. So Herodias here finds her opportunity to get rid of John the Baptist. This is at, at Herod's birthday party. Certainly, uh, at an event like this, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of drink, and Herodias' daughter, who is Herod's niece, is providing the entertainment. And she puts on such a good show 
that Herod, who at this point in the evening certainly cannot be 100% in his right mind, offers her anything she wants, up to half of his kingdom, which is comical because he's not a king and he doesn't own this region. He doesn't actually have anything to offer her. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herodias wants John executed. Her daughter also adds that he be uh, publicly displayed and humiliated. For the sake of time, we won't read uh, the rest of the story here. It's been read for us already this morning. I trust that you've interacted with it this week. But uh, the king sends the order, uh, sadly, as the text tells us, because again, Herod kind of likes John a little bit. And John's head is brought to Herodias's daughter, who brings it to Herodias. And that is the end of the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was tasked with the announcing of God's kingdom on earth. He was tasked with being the forerunner, the prophet in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord of Isaiah chapter 40. This is Jesus' cousin. Jesus called John a prophet and said that no one who is born of women is greater than him. This is a person who had devoted his life to the working of God's kingdom in the world. And yet somehow, in the way that this world works, he can get caught up in the drama of a sinful and powerful family and arrested and put in prison. And then at the ruler's rash vow made at his birthday party, mixed with his wife's long-held grudge, John's life is ended. Mark wants you to think about this story in the context of Christian discipleship. Jesus sends out the 12 to do ministry in the world. And then Mark inserts this story about how one particular follower of Jesus fared, who was commissioned to do the work of God. How does it go for those who are sent out into the world to do God's work? To be blunt about it, to be fair about it, we don't know. The responsibility of God's servants is to do the work that God has given them to do of making the name of Jesus known. That's what the disciples do in chapter 6. That's what John the Baptist does. They make the name of Jesus known. This can sometimes get you into really deep trouble with powerful people who actually stand to lose something if Jesus is king of the world. But sometimes it also produces a, a harvest of 30 or 60 or 100-fold. The path of being a disciple of Jesus is one of, of self-sacrifice. This is going to be uh, an important theme in Mark's gospel as we continue to move forward. So pay attention for, for statements like this coming in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Be on the lookout for these kinds of statements because Mark is going to turn up the volume on this theme of the cost of discipleship 
in the coming weeks. This will give us, I think, a great opportunity to allow God to use Mark's gospel to teach us more about what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus uh, in this world. Next week, we'll pick up uh, in Mark's gospel with chapter 7, so you can be reading that this week. Uh, Next week, uh, Pastor Mark will be back here uh, bringing the word to us, and then uh, in two weeks, the week after that, uh, one of our missionaries, Ben Layer, will be here. We're really excited for that. Uh, Ben will be giving a missionary update for us, and we'll also be uh, stepping into this series, so he'll be bringing the word from Mark chapter 8 in two weeks from now. With all that being said, let's stand, and we'll go ahead and close our time together with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We're grateful for the gift of Jesus to us individually and also as a community. We pray that as we continue to read and think through Mark's gospel, that you would give us wisdom and that you would help us to consider more of how we can become more and more deeply pressed into discipleship in Jesus. Help us to, uh, to have the faith that we lack. Help us to um, be continually working to inhabit uh, the life that you have provided for us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you would help us uh, to um, be good and, and faithful servants of Christ in the worlds in which you have us, in our, in our workplaces, in our homes, and, and here at our, our church as well. We ask that you would continue to give us uh, unity and that you would continue to uh, glorify yourself and make uh, your name known through us. We're grateful for uh, the time that you've given us to be together this morning, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Have a great Sunday and enjoy some fellowship before you go.